Welcome to season four of Libya Matters. In this season, we're looking at what justice really means. More than a decade after the 2011 uprising, after more than four armed conflicts, after at least three international political processes, and impunity for uncountable violations of human rights law and international humanitarian law, with an incredible lineup of guests, we reflect on all this and the findings of LFJL's year-long survey all across Libya on what Libyans' perceptions of justice are 10 years on. All with the aim of bringing a nuanced understanding to all matters Libya. I'm Marwa Mohammed, And I am Alham Saudi. Let's go. And here we are, the last episode of the season. How are you feeling, Inham? It's been good. Uh, what do they say? Time flies when you're having fun? <laughs> no, really, for me, the season has highlighted so many parts of our research over the last year on perceptions of justice. The report and our guests have also challenged my understanding on the themes we discussed, whether it's dealing with the past, victim participation, truth, special courts, or people's tribunals, and how to approach them with more courage and in a more holistic way. Well, it's not quite over yet. We have one more theme to explore, and this one will bring it all back home to us. Yes, uh, today we're exploring the role of the diaspora and what it can offer to justice in the home country. For years, we at LFJL felt we were too Libyan to be international and too international to be local, and it was only when we kind of accepted this double identity that we really found our strength as an organization. And I guess today we can explore that a bit more among the wider question of the role of the diaspora. And I think that... I mean, this is very true as an organization. And, and like you said, you know, you, you kind of find your strength when you uh, accept that identity. But I think that this is very true on a personal level oh, as absolutely. well. So we'll definitely be getting into that um, throughout this episode, I hope. I think I want to start, but I feel a bit too exposed by this topic. Um, so I, I do joke that this is sort of part therapy as well as it is part podcast, this session, but I'm really excited about this one. So let's get started. Great. Well, at least we're not doing this alone. We do have a very special guest um, who's going to guide us through this process today. Our guest today is Nuha Abu Dahab. She is a non-resident fellow in the foreign policy program at Brookings. Prior to that, she was a fellow at the Brookings Doha Center. She is the, as an assistant professor at Georgetown University in, in Qatar, co-chair of the American Society of International Laws, Transitional Justice and Rule of Law Interest Group, the global winner of 2019 British Council Award, a wonderfully lucid thinker on transitional justice. She has recently focused her research on the role of the Arab diasporas in expanding the political, intellectual, and socio-legal spaces of transitional justice, and her book on this topic is expected soon. So, welcome to Libya Matters, Noha. Before we bring Noha in, um, I just want to give one anecdote, because her, her CV is very, very impressive, but what sort of inspired me and terrified me was the first time I met her, because, I, you know, I thought... You know, 2011, I was doing well. I was uh, doing my master's, uh, set up LFJL in parallel and felt quite, you know, gosh, I can multitask. And then I went to an event where Noha was hosting and she was there sharing this really, really, really interesting, engaging event on transitional justice, uh, looking at Libya and, and uh, to, you know, in the Arab Spring, it was very early in 2011. Um, and she was, you know, kind of holding court with all these great thinkers. And at one point took a break to go breastfeed her newborn baby who was three weeks old. And I thought, yeah, 
I've got a lot to go mm-hmm. before I can ever pretend I can multitask. <laughs> and so I always um, remember that story, not least when I feel sorry for myself. I know, I mean, Noha has done this. She was doing her PhD. She was leading this really amazing discussion and was nurturing a beautiful baby boy. Um, so I need to just, you know, shut up and get on with life. <laughs> so with that anecdote, I think you all are in really good hands. Um, and we are especially in good hands as we kind of take this personal journey at the end of our season. Truly welcome, Naha. Well, thank you so much, uh, Marwa and Ilham, for that very generous introduction. I do remember that day, Ilham, when we met. It was in Durham. And uh, I remember when you asked me what my son's name was, and I told you it's safe. You said, goodness, Noha, why on earth would you name your son safe? <laughs> I said, we need to reclaim the name safe, right? It'll help. So thank you for having me. It was a, be- it was a beautiful moment, and I'm, and I'm really looking forward to this and reclaiming so much more of our narrative as we explore this. So we like to always start the episodes with some definitions so that we and the listeners are speaking from the same script. And so what do we really mean when we use the term diaspora? I think that's kind of how we should all start. So we make sure we agree on that. And I think the other part is whenever I think about a definition, I also want to think about who who defines it, right? Who comes up with the definition? So on what basis are we coming up with that definition? All right. So what do we mean by the term diaspora? This is, uh, well, it's, it's very difficult to define. Uh, um, yeah. But I, I guess very broadly speaking, diasporas are individuals who are outside of their home state, whether willingly or unwillingly. I guess that's how I would broadly define it. In terms of who who defines diasporas, again, it's very complex. I mean, you'll find governments in the in the home state defining diasporas quite differently than diasporas themselves would define themselves. Uh, so I think that you'll find, you know, uh, some very diverse definitions of what constitutes a diaspora. And shouldn't forget also that the term diaspora itself um, is controversial because people who we would describe as members of the of the diaspora wouldn't necessarily feel very comfortable being labeled as diaspora because there's this sort of con- um, implication that if you're a member of the diaspora, then you're sort of a long-term member of, you know, this group that's outside of the home state. When in fact, of course, it depends on what which which diasporas you're talking to or which members of the diaspora you're talking to. A lot of them have every intention of returning to the home state. And so they regard their position in the diaspora as very temporary. So I think we have to remember that as well when we define terms like that. And I, I think that's really interesting, the kind of... The, the temporal nature of diasporas, right? Because absolutely, I mean, the term diaspora historically comes from the the, the Jewish diaspora. And um, I think still, if you look in the dictionary definition, that's the first definition is the capital D diaspora refers to to that. Um, And so I think there was a sense of permanence to it. But I guess if you're thinking of those categories of people who don't have an intention of returning, others who do. So there can be, I guess, more than one diaspora, if you like, for a relevant home country, right? They're, they're not kind of unified in that way, or do they need to even be unified in that way? Well, absolutely. I mean, diasporas constitute multiple demographies, let's say, right? You have, you know, they're so diverse in so many different ways, whether it's the, you know, their, their political situation, the reasons they left or had to flee their home state, their socioeconomic backgrounds, um, their education, their professional backgrounds. And so we, we absolutely have to take these multiple demographies of diasporas into account. So building on that, what can, I mean, what is the role of diasporas in, 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 in general? 
what can diasporas do and specifically the role or purpose towards achieving justice? So in general, let's say, broadly speaking in the sort of policy world, okay, um, diasporas are, you know, they're, they're actually, they're key actors in, in, in the sense that they bridge all these different worlds that they come from with the policy world, or at least they attempt to do so. And here I'm in particular thinking about, you know, active diasporic figures who are based in, you know, countries throughout, you know, other countries throughout the Middle East, um, if we're talking about Arab diasporas, as well as in Europe and in North America. And so that bridging of those worlds is is very much a place where a lot of these active diasporic figures can be found. Um, and I think that, you know, in terms of in terms of their role in justice. So looking at the at, at the Syrian diaspora, for example, uh, we all know how active the Syrian lawyers and human rights activists and civil society professionals have been in documenting um, the war in Syria, documenting the violations that have taken place, and also in pursuing justice in many different ways, um, such as through the universal jurisdiction cases uh, in, in Germany and other European states. And so their geographical location in the diaspora, um, not just for Syrians, but we can say the same for uh, Yemenis, for example, um, their, ge- their geographical location in cities such as Berlin and Paris and New York and Washington, D.C., um, has afforded them this access to the you know, public prosecution offices there, the war crimes offices there, uh, to policymakers there so that they could push for justice in these many different ways. In terms of, you know, the Yemeni diaspora, they've been, you know, again, another extremely, extremely diverse uh, diaspora, especially those who left or had to flee since 2015 when the latest round of, of the violence in the war started. They've been not only raising awareness about what's happening in Yemen, uh, um, but they've also been complicating the narrative, right, about what's happening and complicating the narrative about what justice means in a place like Yemen. And they've been doing that. One way that they have been doing that is by drawing attention to the role of history and what is happening in Yemen today. Yemen's very complex, rich history and how that is impacting what is happening today and how that impacts how we should think about the pursuit of justice in a place like Yemen. I think that um, transitional justice is a very useful sort of plane from which some of these diasporic actors have been launching their efforts to seek political change, to seek justice, to seek other forms of social um, and political transformation, um, especially during ongoing conflict in their home state, especially during renewed authoritarian rule in the home state. And I think that they've been effectively using transitional justice and all of its mechanisms as a tool of resistance um, and a tool for political and social change, both by the diasporic uh, communities that we're talking about, but also by their fellow nationals at home. There's quite a bit of collaboration happening there, which is really great to see. But we also can't forget that, you know, transitional justice has a sort of um, more sinister side to it, especially when it's um, instrumentalized by, you know, whether it's governments or the military, etc. There's so much there that I that's, that's getting my head thinking in all sorts of different directions. But one of the 
Because one of the struggles that we have is this constant, like, on whose behalf are we speaking, right? When we're the diaspora in, say, a policy meeting or when we're, like, trying to strategically pick cases. Um, do we, I guess the question I struggle with is, do I have a right to make that call myself because I'm still Libyan and I'm still vested in the country and uh, me being outside, it doesn't preclude me from that. But then that sort of other side of me is going, well, actually, wait, do I have that privilege actually of saying I'm going to, you know, one of the things that always frustrates me is going to a meeting, oh, what do Libyans think about this? I'm like, well, mm. I don't know what, I don't know. I haven't can- canvassed every Libyan, but I can tell you that, you know, this is what I think, or this is my understanding from working with partners. But there's always this kind of need to take it back to the home country to establish my credibility at some level, right? I need to reference either surveys we did at home or partners we spoke to at home. It's almost that my experience on its own is not credible enough and that my any lobbying that might come out of that is not sort of legitimate. And so I do, it's almost kind of, I guess, the the question I'm getting to, or I don't, you know, what your thoughts are, or what your thoughts might want on, on this kind of balance, right? Of does the diaspora have its own ownership, if you like, of, and its and its ability to complicate the narrative, you, you know, in, from its perspective? And I really love that concept of complicating the narrative. Mm. Or do we owe a duty to be representing those in the country who might not have the access we do? Well, I think that you know, you said a very important word, legitimate, right? Um, I think diasporas really struggle to, um, you know, with these issues of these questions of legitimacy and their credibility. They certainly, I mean, I don't know, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but as a member of the of the diaspora myself, I feel that I am legitimate in, you know, in my own right. I feel that I, you know, I hope that I am credible. But of course, I think it's important that we acknowledge the limitations of our physical positioning outside of the home state, um, but also because of the differences in our experiences now, especially, you know, after having left the home state, um, that the li- our lived experiences are, are, are changing. Um, whereas the lived experiences of our fellow nationals back home are continuing. And, and, and um, I think that it's a very difficult um, challenge, this question of legitimacy and credibility to grapple with, especially when you um, take on this enormous task of uh, conveying, you know, how Libyans back home or how Egyptians back home or how Yemenis back home really feel, right? But having said that, I think, and, and this this sort of expands on, on the last point that you made, um, I think diasporas do play a very important role, uh, a role that our fellow nationals back home don't cannot necessarily play, right? And that is this whole idea of, Physical access, Uh, I can't think of a better way to frame it, but physical access to actors who have impact on what goes on in our countries, right? And so um, bridging those those worlds, as I said before, the bridging the, 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 the domestic and foreign policy worlds together with whatever background we're coming from, whether we're artists, whether we're journalists, whether we're judges or doctors or lawyers, I think that that privilege, as, as you mentioned, it really is a privilege and it's one that we should be using as much as we can. I think, I mean, just to kind of weigh in on this as well, it is it is quite a, um, a complex role because part of it is that being part of the diaspora, I think that there is that privilege. Being not, it's not only the physical access, but it also is the uh, the platform that we have to be able to amplify voices. And so I think that there is a part of that identity 
where you do feel that you have that, because you have the access, you have the obligation to amplify the voices of the people um, or, or to those who, whose voices cannot be heard in, from inside. But also at the same time, you know, you don't want to take on the the role of being you know, the voice or, or, you know, believe yourself to be the voice. Um, and, and so it is a difficult balance to, mm. to achieve in terms of trying to kind of bring both aspects. And I think it also, it, it makes, I feel, if you like our counterparts, right, in policy or in governments, it's really, it's a really difficult, but it feels like it makes them complacent in a way, right? The policymakers, because they, they have access to the diaspora so easily um, that it's easy to kind of just have that conversation. But then at some level, it's like, well, okay, that's an effective route and we're in, in it and we can impact it. And I guess th- th- this comes back to the same point again, is our exercise of this privilege or this access or whatever we want to call it, detracting from others' ownership of the cause? Or is the cause big enough that actually we all have a stake in it and it's not a competition for who owns Libyanness or Egyptianness or Yemenness or Syrianness more, right? It's not like I'm more Libyan than you because I'm somewhere else. So I think that's kind of the tension because I, I still feel that very rarely will I be in a room talking about what I think I need for my country. It's more like, no, 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 I have this privilege, therefore I should talk about, I should be this platform, I should be this conduit, I should be this amplifier. And often I will sort of subordinate my thought processes in favor of representing those of my co-nationals in country. Does that make sense? I'm just... It does make sense. And I think that the, the, I mean, one one other thing that I sort of struggle with is I'm always sort of suspicious of, um, you know, am I being tokenized, you know, by being invited to speak, you know, on this panel or that panel, um, you know, is, is it so that they could say, look, not only do we have an Egyptian, we have a woman Egyptian speaking here for all, you know. Um, and so, so I think that's, that's, that's definitely uh, something that's constantly at the front of my mind when it comes to those kinds of engagements, uh, whether it's with... But it's also not just an Egyptian and a woman, right? It's an Egyptian and a woman who speaks a bit like us and culturally understands us. And so this won't be an awkward conversation. Exactly. And, and the thing is, I mean, you know, I think we're talking about a sort of an identity crisis, perhaps, that we have. But we should remember that, you know, our fellow nationals back home also experience uh, identity crises, right? I mean, um, especially when there's, you know, ongoing conflict, when there's repression and, you know, really sort of like just bad politics happening and uh, polarization, there is, there is, there are multiple identity crises that they are experiencing at home as well. And I, so I think in a sort of strange way, perhaps we can seek comfort in knowing that it's not just us that is, you know, that who are, who are undergoing this uh, or experiencing this, uh, this strange um, identity, identity crisis. But I think that, you know, one of the Perhaps one of the ways to slowly overcome this, and I know it's not easy, is I think a lot of the, a big part of the problem is that those encounters or those engagements that we're talking about, whether it's with international institutions, uh, Western governments, etc., they happen in the global north, right? They happen in these big cities. Um, uh, more and more of them need to happen closer to home um, because then you get, you know, th- you get the the Libyans and the Egyptians and the Yemenis and the and the Tunisians who 
you know, don't speak English, who don't have a Western education, um, who aren't as super mobile, but who really, really matter because they rep- they are the ones who actually represent, you know, a lot more than, you know, what I or other people in, in a similar position would represent. And so I think that um, it, the, the convening power, the geographical location of um, where such encounters and engagements and relationship building um, are convened is very important. And I think that, that could slowly transform that. And of course, there's, you know, don't don't get me started on the issue of language, right? I mean, that's another huge challenge. Yes. No, but let's do that. Let's get you on the <laughs> on the question of language, because it is, it's, um, you know, I, I've been in meetings in DC in very well-resourced institutions and they're like, oh, sorry, we don't have a budget for translation. So mm-hmm. we need an English speaker. And, you know, you know what, I mean, you see their buildings, you know how much budgets they've got. Um, and I'm like, cut, cut your catering for the event down and bring in a translator. Like, it's not that hard, you know, but it's, it's this kind of, well, we don't really need to because you'll accommodate us before we have to accommodate others. Um, and it, it is, it's exactly that. Like, I think the language thing has always, has always been an issue. And uh, for us as an organization, actually lockdown has empowered us to change our policy because we were having so many events online instead of in person. Like, okay, well, the, the budget that we would use for a venue, et cetera, let's just use that for interpreters and make this more accessible to uh, our nationals at home, but our nationals in other countries who don't speak the language. And it's made us so much more effective that now it's a, just a policy. And I, and I really don't even entertain the conversation with donors anymore where they're like, oh, we, you know, do you need a translation for an event in this country or something? Well, no, if there's an element of it that is accessible to others and it needs to be accessible in all the languages. So yeah, I, I it is a frustration, um, for sure. But as we're talking about this, right, there's so many relationships that are emerging. There's like the relationship between the diaspora and the home country, the relationship between the diaspora and the counterparts, the relationship within the diaspora itself and, and between diasporas of the same, of the same um, country. But none of it is static, right? Because that relationship is so malleable in terms of, of, how, it's, of how it works. So I have a, you know, a really clear memory of 2000, you know, if I, if I rewind back to 2011, there was a mass return of Libyans who were abroad to Libya to sort of join in and be part of um, the change. And that includes myself and I know includes you, Marwan, includes, you know, a whole bunch of us who had been living abroad and, and returned. You know, we all dropped what we were doing and, and we rushed back home and we were welcomed. We were so welcome. Like I remember making the border crossing from Tunisia, one of the checkpoints, you know, I, I, I was so bl- like blunt and saying, oh, I'm really sorry. My phone is is, is British. It's not working here. Can I just borrow your phone to speak to my mom and tell her that I've made the crossing? And, you know, was, at that time, there were the revolutionaries. They weren't the militias yet. So they, their identities changed as well. But I remember very clearly him saying, oh, welcome home, welcome home. And of course you can use my phone. And it was such a moment of like belonging that I'd never felt in my life. Um, and it, it really sort of solidified for, for a few hours or for a few weeks or let's say a year. I, I lost that identity crisis because it was that moment of sort of being welcomed and our value was, was sort of noted, if you like. And all of a sudden we saw Libyans who were returning from abroad, taking on leading roles in the politics, in the country, in the media and cultural scene. But that didn't last long. You know, within a, a few years, we went back to being double Shafra, which is the term we use in Libya. Like it's the Shafra is a sim, a sim card for those uh, listening who don't, understand, who don't understand Arabic, which implies that, you know, we can change lines and languages and stuff whenever we want. So it's not a flattering um, 
a flattering depiction. And the laws were starting to reflect that. There were restrictions on people who are dual citizens from running for office or doing anything. And so we saw that that shift and it's quite a stark shift from sort of, you know, being welcomed to, you know, being very heavily rejected. And so that relationship between the diaspora and the, and the home country can be so fickle that, it, that I'm almost thinking, how can you how can you mitigate that fickleness, if you like, and build on it so that the relationship or that benefit of both kind of interact better and somehow we consolidate something positive instead of, am I welcome today? Am I not welcome tomorrow? Dynamic causes, a, 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 you know, a, like a split between the home country and its diaspora. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the fact that, as you said, it's it's not static is what keeps us going because... You know, when you leave your your home state, um, or you're forced to leave, um, or you're you know you're outside of your home state, but unwillingly, you you have a sense of longing, right? Um, you feel this sense of loss, but you know that it could change. And the reason that we know that it could change is because of what happened in 2011 and how we felt during that moment when you know there was the there were the uprisings and being able to go back and experience that and as you said you you no longer had an identity crisis when you went back and i i i can totally relate to this because i was also i was outside of egypt when when the uprising happened and i went back during and um and i felt right at home um which you know of course quickly changed after that uh as, as we know, with the, with the developments in Egypt since then. So absolutely, the, the, this sense of identity and our relationship with our home country um, is not static and it changes. And again, I think that that is what I think people like you and me who work in the field of international law and human rights and justice, I think that's what keeps us going. That's what gives us hope that, you know, this, this sort of... Um, difficult situation, this, this feeling of loss might not be permanent, right? Um, and it, it gives us a sense of purpose as well, I think, which is important. Hi, my name is Sonia Markova, and uh, I'm a research fellow with uh, Dolores for Justice in Libya. And I have uh, been working on the research on the justice perception in Libya. We have interviewed Tam of the diaspora. So it's not to say that uh, we, we were, have not been able to reach out to diasporas um, in of pro-Qaddafis in Egypt or, or, other, or Tunis or other places. But I found that perceptions were more or less similar because these were people who left Libya because of the violations against them or their families or people who were afraid to go back for um, reprisals against them for the work they have been doing as journalists or human rights defenders, for example. So they, they had similar, similar expectations or similar demands for accountability and for transitional justice. So I think that that mistrust or that, you know, that fickleness that I have mentioned is not just in the, in the relationship that we have as diaspora outside to, to the country. But I think it's also, or at least in the, in the case of Libya, it is very, very much, um, it's, it's part of the diaspora itself. So, um, and I think that, I mean, obviously with the situation in Libya, we grew up mistrusting other Libyans outside because 
of the direct um, state policies and and, um, um, and you know implanting people in, in, in different diasporas and uh, in different countries as as um, security apparatus, uh, the Gaddafi's security apparatus that was far reaching, and so there was definitely that that mistrust we. Uh, within the diaspora to, uh, itself. And I think that this looking at how do we reconcile this, not only on an individual level, and I think that I've had, you know, very similar experiences going back um, to Libya. Where, you know, and, and for me personally, I think that in, in many parts of, of my life, going in and out of Libya, there's always the sense of being very apologetic almost or and wanting to overcompensate for my for you know in in libyanness so for acceptance and i think that there's definitely even after the the uprising like Ham said it was a perhaps a year max and then after that i had to walk around with my passport to actually prove that i'm i'm libyan when and, and if needed so and so there's there's I think identity at play. There's there's elements of, of mistrust, but it's it's so packed that the question is that how do we begin to rebuild that trust and acceptance, and um, uh, so that the diaspora can actually then come to get come together. I mean, and as a unified community, is that possible even? that we kind of bring uh, the different mm. diasporas together and, and, and kind of imagine or romanticize an I- this idea that, that we can come together for the, for, um, for the purpose of justice. But just, just to kind of, you know, reflect on that as, as well. Like I, you know, we growing up outside Libya, I was always jealous of Egyptians and Lebanese people because wherever you went, there was like an Egyptian club, there was a Lebanese club, the minute they arrived in whatever city, they signed up to it. And there was like this implicit trust in each other. This, at least from the outside, that's what it looked like. Whereas whenever we arrived at a new place, my mom was like, okay, if, like, if we hear someone speaking Libyan, we cross the road and mm-hmm. we go to the other side. If someone in a restaurant is speaking in a Libyan dialect, we start speaking in English because we don't know what they are. We don't know their politics. We don't trust them. And so actually, you know, we grew up with this very deliberate Deconnecting, or that's even or disconnecting, you know, from our community, and it was a, a, the only way you really stayed safe, and you kind of, you know. And so, I remember, but I'm like, but look at look look at all my Egyptian friends. They go to this like club every single you know weekend, and they you know they go on trips together, and the Lebanese are doing all this stuff. And, and she's like, yeah, they they have a different community, and and for me that you know that still stays with me. And I, and I think when you when I reflect on it, you know, as, as proud as I am of out of jail and what we do and our partners, we are behind on what the diaspora can achieve compared to the Syrian diaspora or the, you know, the Egyptian or, or the Lebanese when something happens and able to, and being able to galvanize a movement and being able to um, really amplify the voices. And it, we're also obviously hindered that we're, we're much smaller in numbers as well. But, you know, it is something, you know, to build on what Maru was asking, I think there, you know, what is it that we can do to heal the damage of being even within the diaspora, ignore our relationship with the mm. home country for a second, even within the diaspora so that we can start working together and we can, instead of being a collection of people, which is, I think, how we define diaspora at the beginning, you know, it's, a, it's, the, it's, the, it's the sum of the individuals that are outside to maybe being more of like a, an entity or a unified entity, at least those of us who are working on similar themes, um, to be a unified community as opposed to like a collection of people. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's very closely linked to this, um, this, this problem of mistrust is, is fear, right? And I don't actually think that you can separate the role of the state in instilling that fear, whether it's, you know, among its citizens and, you know, in the, on the territory of the home state or its citizens abroad. Um, you know, this, this whole idea of transnational repression is now more vicious than ever. Not, I mean, it, it always was a thing in Libya, I know, especially, you know, throughout the 80s. But um, it's, it's, now, it's now become the norm for so many other Arab diasporas as well. And um, so that sort of the, uh, the, the, role of the, the role of your home government in ensuring that you don't trust each other and ensuring that you are still afraid, it's a strategy that unfortunately has been, you know, successful in many ways. It's also been unsuccessful in other ways. But I think that it's difficult to separate the role of the state in that. Now, in terms of, you know, how do we overcome this? Um, I think that this is where host states really need to step up their game, right? I mean, I know that through my work, for example, at the Brookings Institute, I've had conversations with politicians and policymakers about this particular issue to say, look, you know, this sort of, yeah, transnational repression, you guys need to do something about it. Um, do your research before you invite, you know, an Egyptian human rights activist and a bunch of Egyptian parliamentarians to, to and put them together in the same room, you know, and then, you know, the death threats and stuff start uh, flowing after that. Um, just do a little bit of homework and curate, you know, these meetings in a way where they're still meaningful, but you overcome this, the, 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 the effects of transnational repression, establish safe spaces, where you can have, again, dis disagreements, people from, you know, one end of the spectrum to the other and everything in between in the same room talking, but without compromising their safety. And this can happen on so many different levels. And I think that the host states really need to step up in, in this regard and in, in ensuring that there are safe spaces for the diasporas, for the people, at, for their families back home. Um, but to also, you know, have these these dialogues where you do have disagreement, but constructive disagreement. I think this point of host states is really interesting because I've, I've actually abdicated them of any responsibility until this point, right? And so, but if you think in the context of Libya, I mean, this is a super generalization, but it's, it's to make a point. The diasporas tend to convene in home state, in sort of host states or in other states that are politically aligned to their position. So, you know, you've got people, because, because Libya is so internationalized as a conflict and there's so many actors there and um, you will find people who are aligned to a particular side congregating in Egypt and those who are on a different side congregating in Turkey or those, you know, who are um, a different part in Tunisia. And so it's kind of, it's almost like the diaspora self-selecting in areas. And so where are those safe spaces to discuss? Because actually or to cross-pollinate. I mean, you can sort of safely discuss it with people like you, right? And effectively create diaspora silos. But to try and move on the conversation and to kind of, you know, form some healing from a transitional justice perspective, sort of a, a reconciliation of the diaspora, are there natural places for, for those to cross-pollinate? Because those who are based in Egypt might not be so welcomed 
by others who are based in a different country because of who they represent, you know, who they're perceived to represent at the very least. Um, and so I, I feel like I'm speaking in code, but I think everyone listening will understand the code. <laughs> um, but I, but I, but I'm thinking about this as you're mentioning it, because I do think there is so much of that in Libya that, you know, people tend to gravitate towards where they'll feel safe as a diaspora, which is understandable as a human instinct. But that doesn't strike me immediately as conducive to conversation or cross-pollination. Yeah, I mean, I think that just as the political situation in our home countries is not necessarily static, although it can sometimes feel that way, safe spaces are not static either. And this is where we need to keep our finger on the pulse of, you know, what is a safe space? And um, again, though, I think we need to sort of link this with our earlier conversation about who is involved, who is participating in these engagements and encounters that we were talking about before and how it's, you know, we want, it's better to bring it closer to home or as close to home as possible so that these conversations are more meaningful and that they're not just happening, you know, in Europe or North America, right? Um, but I do think that there are safe spaces that are closer to home. Um, and again, this this changes this changes depending on the, you know, on geopolitics, on international politics. But, you know, for example, I, I you know, I could see something happening um, in, I don't know, Marrakesh or Amman or maybe even still Tunis, which has been a safe space for a lot of these Arab diasporas for a while now, or even Doha, where I'm based, right? Um, and so I do think, I do think it's possible. I think it just requires flexibility in um, being able to shift it constantly depending on on the political situation yeah i know that i mean that level of gymnastics is is really <laughs> demanded right to be able to kind of maneuver where any of the countries you mentioned or others are on any particular day because my instinct is to always think yeah somewhere like marrakesh would be safe but actually even that's become involved in the constitutional process and so it is absolutely what you say when you wake up in the morning on that day who is the least involved in libya is probably how you would start because it's just you know it's it's almost like you could play a game of point on the map and we'll find a link of how they've kind of contributed to the conflict somehow i mean another thing that i would add is not to give COVID any credit or anything but zoom has facilitated cross-regional mobilization, conversations. It certainly has for me. I've managed to speak to members of other Arab diasporas that I don't think I otherwise would have been able to speak to. But again, it's a very select group, isn't it? It's people who have access to the internet. It's people who are able to, you know, who have the time to do this, who, you know, so, so it can never be perfect. But I do think that Zoom, certainly over the past two years, um, I've been engaging a lot more in direct conversations with other members of uh, members of the other Arab diasporas about issues concerning justice and political change, etc., even from 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 my own country, Egypt. So we promised at the beginning that we were going to use this to sort of bring it home to out of jail in our work and how well, how as a diaspora organization, which probably is the first time I define it that way, but um, I think it is how we can be strategic about our role and how we can operationalize this diaspora status effectively. So instead of apologizing, like you were saying, Marwa, owning, operationalizing and using this status to ensure that we contribute to a positive outcome on concepts of transitional justice, justice more widely, rule of law questions, a to-do list for us, if you like, on how to do that. 
So I'll, I'll start. The obvious one and the one on which we are doing quite a lot of work is on pursuing international justice or international criminal justice um, mechanisms, right? So things like universal jurisdiction, which we are inspired by the Syrian success, uh, and we hope to be able to emulate some of that, but also looking at forcing the mandate of the International Criminal Court on Libya to be better. <laughs> Frankly, that's the only way to say that simply. And I guess, we you know, we've also been, and we've explored in this season, the concept of a special court for Libya, perhaps, or something that, you know, opens up another avenue, a hybrid court of sorts to to um, explore other ways of holding those who are responsible for, for all the crimes that we've looked at um, accountable. And I guess the other thing I would add is to use our double shafra or our, you know, dual SIM identity proactively. And by what I mean by that is, as a as Libyan and British citizen, when I'm in a meeting with parliamentarians in the UK, I address them as a British citizen. I don't address them as a Libyan citizen. Um, and it took me a long time to kind of own that part of my identity to say, well, I, you know, I live here, I pay my taxes. I, you know, I voted um, someone into this parliament. And so I'm, I'm, I'm making demands here of you in my entitled status as a, as a citizen um, to look at my home country. And that's been, ex- you know, much more powerful than I anticipated because they're, they kind of have to listen to you then, right? It's not a favor if not. And so those are kind of things that I, that come to mind immediately. Maru, I know that obviously you've been reflecting on on this from like our advocacy angles and what kind of the access point we have and um, and how to use that better. Yeah, absolutely. I think that as a Libyan, you know, who sits in meetings and um, in different capitals and then the UN, I think that I, on the other hand, you know, speaking about Libya and capital, I feel more entitled being a Libyan mm-hmm. to sit down and say, you know, frankly, what you're doing is, is messing up my country and feel that I can demand more. And, and so I think that that's where the identity thing comes in, because you, you're apologetic back home, but very demanding mm. on, on the international level. And, but I feel entitled to do that. And, and I won't apologize mm. for that. So what do we have on the to-do list so far? Universal jurisdiction, more pushing of the ICC, hybrid courts, being entitled at international meetings. But also also the international community. So specifically, yes, um, the ICC and specifically, you know, different the UNs out there, but but also capitals, mm. also countries that um, have participated and played a direct role in, in where we are today. And then um, so they have an obligation. And I think that that's on our to-do list to, to pursue that. You started it. You can't just, you know, throw your mm. hands up and say, all right, we're busy. But no, there is an obligation. And I think that that, that should be there too. No, how any things we forgot that need to be on that list? I mean, you guys are already doing such a great job, um, but I, I do have perhaps one point I'd like to discuss, which is, you know, an organization such as LFJL is also a knowledge producer, right? And I think that there's a crisis of knowledge production when it comes to all these areas, whether it's human rights, international justice, what have you. Because especially especially in the context of Libya, it's, as you said, such it's, it's such an internationalized and regionalized conflict. And so what ends up happening is you have so many non-Libyans, um, many of them very smart and, and have meaningful things to say, commenting uh, and publishing about Libya. Um, uh, but the Libyan voice is sort of more difficult to find, 
right? And this is for, you know, so many reasons that have to do with the, you know, the politics of knowledge production. I mean, if you're talking about uh, academic publications or even think tank publications, this whole peer review process is extremely exclusionary, right? And this is a huge problem because then you end up hearing from people who have a PhD from Harvard or, you know, a, a law degree from Oxford University who speak perfect English and having their publications out there and their ideas out there and the rest gets lost or it doesn't get hurt. And so I see this persistence of, again, this whole sort of like disconnect between um, the European world, the North American world and, and, and those who are back home. Um, and I know it's a lot more complicated than that, but just for the sake of trying to sort of explain this crisis of knowledge production. So I think that LFJL perhaps could not, not just do amazing work with its convening power, but also in sort of foregrounding the knowledge and the insights and the expertise of Libyans by overcoming this whole exclu- this exclusionary process that, you know, we all sort of have to deal with. Our colleagues in the research department at LJL will thank you for that, because clearly in our to-do list, we focused more on the law department's work and the advocacy department's work. But um, no, I mean, and this whole season is in, is intended to highlight a bit of what you're asking of us, which is this, you know, this year-long research we've been doing on the ground with people's perceptions of justice a decade after the conflict. And um, the link to that report is in the episode description for those who want to read it. But so are our other reports that we've, we've done this year. But I do appreciate that NGO reports are a very niche market. <laughs> um, and so we need to do better on kind of getting more into the mainstream publication mm-hmm. on Libya. So that is definitely um, definitely one for us to mm-hmm. do better mm-hmm. on. And we're grateful for, mm-hmm. for that. And yes, the knowledge, there is a huge knowledge deficit um, in, in Libya. And that's, and that's important. So, um, yeah, for everyone listening watch the space clearly more to come from us um and hopefully with support of, of good friends like you Noha. and so we're coming to the sort of last segment which we call debunking the narrative um and uh, given that you've already acknowledged this kind of need to complicate the narrative i think i expect that you'll be very good at this um and so the way this works is we throw something at you that we hear a lot around this topic and you're, you should respond as instinctively and as short, like briefly as, as you can to debunk this narrative. We've only got one for you, but it's quite a juicy one. Marwa, do you want to go for yeah. it? So the diaspora are an entitled elite. They have not felt our struggle, so cannot share in the rewards. What would you say to debunk that kind of narrative that continues? I would say that that is a serious misunderstanding of what diasporas are and what they do. But it's also a very serious misunderstanding of the personal nature of of these diasporas, their sense of belonging, their sense of longing, the sense of loss and grief that they experience because they have shared in the struggles, uh, because they have experienced the same struggles or similar struggles. Um, So that's what I would say to that. And beautifully said. Thank you so much, Noha, for your time. I I feel this is a very apt end to the season. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I am Rawia. I work in the research and capacity building departments at Lawyers for Justice in Libya. In this LFGL Explains, I will talk about the role of the Libyan diaspora and how this encompasses the work of LFGL. 
Libya was exposed to many historical stages that led to the exodus of Libyans abroad, especially during the Gaddafi regime, which lasted for more than 40 years, during which many Libyans were forced to leave the country. This diaspora community consisted of a broad range of people from Libyan society. In February 2011, anti-government protesters received great support from the Libyans in exile, and they were able together to form a force opposing the regime. Over the past 10 years, Libyans have continued to flee the country because of the conflict and insecurity. As a result, the Libyan diaspora has expanded to include new categories of activists and political actors who sought asylum abroad, in addition to new economic and social groups who fled the country due to deteriorating economic and security conditions. Issues related to peace building, reconciliations, achieving justice, and empowering women have been focal points of Libyan in the diaspora, who despite their differing ideological cultures could find common ground when it comes to discussing the future of Libyans in the post-Gaddafi era. According to a study published by the Arab Reform Initiative, Libyans in Western capital have been able to build strong relationships with foreign policymakers and some international organizations. The study actually cited lawyers for justice in Libya as one of the main examples of the post-2011 mobilizations, networks of human rights workers lobbying the international community on issues relating to Libya. It's wrote nothing that, as the diaspora organizations, LFGL continues to form new strategy to link the diaspora to each other, as well as to build continuous bridge with the people of the homeland at home and the people of the homeland abroad. One way in which we do this is a true Libyan matters and our Arabic language podcast Haqqani, which collects the true story of human rights violations in Libya. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is hosted by me, Maro Mohammed and Alham Saudi. It is produced by Demiri Media. The people who put season four of Libya Matters together are Mae Thompson, Alexandra Azua, Maro Mohammed and me. It was made possible by contributions from the LFJL team, Mohammed Al Misiri, Mohammed Al Mustafa, Rawia Hamza, Christina Orsini, Mirna Nasrallah and Jürgen Schur.